0: Hi, I'm Ryan McGrannigan, an aerospace engineer, data scientist, and all-around art, design, engineering, and science enthusiast. And you're listening to Origins, the show where we talk with thought leaders across eclectic areas of society about their origin stories and trajectories. The purpose is to highlight these thought leaders across different landscapes to learn about the pivotal moments in their lives and to illustrate the ways of living that help you actionably re-examine your own assumptions and patterns, to provide ideas and stories to give you pause, bring you excitement, and be origins of new trajectories. Elizabeth Anderson not only works at the intersection of moral and political philosophy, social science, and economics, but has indeed been defining that space for the past several decades of brilliant novel thought. She has become a leading theorist of democracy and social justice. Her work has redefined the practice of contemporary philosophy to draw on real-world problems and information. Anderson is prolific. She has written an overwhelming number of papers and four books each of which should be compulsory reading, including her groundbreaking treatise on equality, what is the point of equality, and the books The Imperative of Integration and Private Government, How Employers Rule Our Lives and Why We Don't Talk About It, just to name a few. Her work rightfully earns her wide recognition as a thought leader and, indeed, a genius. Anderson is the Arthur F. Thurnau Professor and John Dewey Distinguished University Professor of Philosophy and Women's Studies at the University of Michigan and she is the recipient of the MacArthur's Foundation's Revered Genius Grant. Elizabeth is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. She has a BA with high honors in philosophy from Swarthmore College and a PhD from Harvard. Elizabeth is an inspiration, perhaps the philosopher best suited to this moment in American life, and it is a profound pleasure to have her join us today on Origins. Elizabeth Anderson, welcome.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here
0: really excited to speak with you. So I wanted to start, I believe that you entered school at Swarthmore um, wanting to study economics. Uh, But as I I understand it, a job as a bookkeeper in 1979 changed those desires. Uh, Can you describe that evolution?
1: Yes. So uh, in high school, I was a true blue fan. (laughs) And and so economics is kind of a natural pair with that, you know, free markets, free people, free markets. Um and so I entered Swarthmore College attending to major in economics, but I also um was philosophically oriented and my first year I took a course, just introduction to philosophy. And my teacher had us read Marx's, Karl Marx's economic and philosophic manuscripts of 1844. And Marx is talking about the labor process and how awful work is for ordinary workers during the industrial revolution. And this just floored me because I realized that there was nothing in libertarian philosophy that engaged what work was like what the nature of social relations within the workplace is, just what, what work does to people. And even though by the 1970s, when I was an undergraduate, working conditions were quite different for workers than they were much better than for workers than they were during the industrial revolution. Uh, I, when I, over the summer, I got a job as a bookkeeper at a bank in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I and I was just I just went because a friend of mine said, Oh, you know, I've got this, this summer job. And why don't we just room together and hang out in Massachusetts? I thought, well, that'd be fun. Okay, so we'll do that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, my job was and I, you know, I, I just sort of put in my application to a bunch of different places and this one came up. So just going to do this and make money. It wasn't anything having anything to do with career or anything. I just had to make money to cover my expenses. So I'm working at this uh, bookkeeping department and and the bookkeepers, what their job was in those days, now it's all completely automated. It's all done by computers, but in those, what we did was bounce checks. So, you know, someone submits a check and there's not enough money to pay for it. And you would be sorting that out um, and you would need a manager to come in and decide whether the check should be paid, whether they should be charged, whether you should bounce it. And it mostly was about collecting the fines. Right. And I noticed a systematic pattern and a big pattern was virtually every small business, uh, had two accounts. They had an account for their payroll. And they had an account for all their other expenses, like if it was a restaurant, the stuff they would buy from, they would buy food from their suppliers and things like that, cleaning supplies and so forth. And I noticed that uh, these restaurants, if they were running short on money, they would always bounce the payroll, they would never bounce the suppliers. And then I would notice many of these workers who were working at these places when they deposited their checks, their their paychecks, those checks then would bounce, (laughs) right? (laughs) And they would get fined on the depositor's end. (laughs) Right. Right. I mean, these are innocent people. Like They're not trying to rip anybody off. They're the ones who are getting ripped off by their employer. And then they get ripped off again by the bank. And on top of that, because there's insufficient funds in their account now because their paycheck bounced, they're writing checks hoping, you know, that they have to cover their bills and those get bounced. And so pretty soon they're piling up with the fines and these people never got off the hook. Often enough though, you know, the, the company clients, the business clients would get off the hook and and that, that is they wouldn't be charged for bounce checks.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And, uh, right. I just saw the systematic class privilege and the richer, they never, they would, it's amazing actually how even very wealthy people where, you know, you, they have a lot of money because they might have a savings account with piles of money. And in those days, the accounts weren't linked. So you knew they were rich, but they just didn't bother, right? Mm-hmm. So they're writing bounce checks all the time and they were given and sometimes even they they would get paid. The bank would pay it, even though there's not sufficient funds. Um, It's incredible class privilege. Whereas a real poor worker bounces a check and they might even be sent off to prison.
2: Hmm.
1: So I saw that and I saw that if workers were being used by businesses as a source of free loans, interest-free loans, and it was even worse than that because the workers actually, right, would have to pay, you know, for the supposed privilege of making forced loans to their employer and be paid these fines all the time. It's just like completely outrageous. There was no explanation for that. And at the same time, this was during, it was right at the beginning of the cubicalization revolution. And so we had an open office and now I know open office, But in the seventies, we had open offices that was standard. <clears throat> then they had this cubicalization revolution and our boss decides we're all going to get cubicalized. And for us, like we were never consulted about this. Like this is just imposed on us. And we had had a very relaxed atmosphere. It was a tiny office. So there weren't that many, it didn't take that many bookkeepers to bounce all the checks <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> we were very efficient, <laughs> but, uh. You know, I mean, we'd just be chatting and, you know, we just had camaraderie there in an open office. And then occasionally, of course, you would be getting some checks that weren't actually for your back to the accounts. And so you just reach behind and pass a check to the person behind you because, you know, it's their back to check, you know, the count numbers that they're, that they're responsible for. And now you actually had to, like, get out of your chair. Walk around and you know it's like a pain and it interfered with conversation and it kind of just put a damper on the whole atmosphere you know in the office and everybody felt a grievance because we hadn't been consulted. Now you know these days I think the open office has its downsides to be sure Chief, you really need to concentrate Um, and there's a lot of workers you know who have problems because they don't sometimes you need privacy as well if you're having like conversations with people that need to be confidential. We don't want everybody hearing it, and so forth. But for our kind of work, the open office was quite ideal and cubicles made no, uh, and we just realized like we were totally powerless. So we're grumbling because we weren't consulted. And maybe if there had been some rationales or something explained to us, maybe maybe we would have gone along, but we were not happy with it. It, And it's just sort of, it is a very minor, kind of case in, you know, because on, our jobs weren't bad, they were decently paid, it was an okay, it was an okay position. But you just see these minor tyrannies. And, and then, then you go back to college, and then you hear about major tyrannies happening for much poorer and less well-off workers. oh, so it's like the same logic, only they, they're clamping down much harder. And, and abusing workers and exploiting them much more. The lower down they are in the totem pole, and libertarianism really had nothing to say about this except, oh well, well you chose that. <laughs> except what? alternative do they have? They got to eat, you know. Right. <laughs> that wasn't really, <laughs> you know, much of an answer. And and, and and so I got I got more interested in the normative aspects. Of economics and markets. And for the most part, in economics, you can do a little bit of that, but but they want it to be value free, supposedly, hmm. even though that's kind of bogus. There are values embedded in economics, for sure, and the assumptions of economics and the questions they ask, and so forth. Um, and, and so, I moved over to philosophy. Philosophy also was a place where you could ask more foundational questions about the assumptions of economics and other other modes of inquiry. What mm-hmm. are the foundational assumptions? Like they said, well, you're acting on your preferences, so you must be better off when your preferences. is right. Well, no, actually, that's not necessarily true. People aren't always self-interested when they act. Sometimes they're just going along with social norms. They they do it because there's all kinds of pressures on them and so forth. You're not necessarily better off. Lots of social norms are really dysfunctional. Other times you're coerced in in various ways and it's not what your your choice isn't a reflection really of your autonomous preference. It's just like you don't really, you're not really given a real choice. And in philosophy, you can ask
2: questions
0: about that. But in economics, it's just, you know, an accident practically. Interesting. So I'm curious because you said you were kind of philosophically oriented. Um, I'm curious first if if that's something you recognized from an early age. And then how when you decided to go towards philosophy, um, that you kind of, it seems to me that you made your own brand of, of contemporary philosophy. Uh, that existed at the intersection between the concrete aspects of economics and, and government and the less concrete, perhaps, or more abstract components of philosophy in, in asking these questions. I'm curious how you found a balance between those and, and kind of struck your own path across that.
1: Yeah, I mean, in certain ways, there's some affinities between economics and philosophy in 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 that... A lot of economics, and this was especially true when I was taking economics, a lot of it's very abstract. And, and you know, in the 70s, theory was a big thing. These days, actually, a great improvement of uh, economics these days is much more empirically oriented. You know, In the 70s, in the late 70s and early 80s, it would be really hard to get a hardcore data heavy paper, the top journals, like the American economics, economic review, you know, it had to be some kind of high theory kind of paper, very abstract, a priori, and a lot of philosophy, analytic philosophy in particular is like that as well. So there, there are certain affinities. Uh, but in fact, um, what I really, what really moved me Was rather seeing how philosophical and economic problems are experienced on the ground by people. So the relevance of experience just became more salient to me. And and, And the importance of asking questions that make a difference for people's lives rather than just an absolutely abstract questions don't really make a difference. Hmm. You know, like a lot of moral philosophies met ethical inquiry. Like what does the word good mean? Now there's a role for that and, and it's perfectly legitimate, but it, it just wasn't what caught my attention as something important
2: to pursue. Hmm. And
0: was there a I mean, course or a, or a professor that that really changed your thinking or, or changed your trajectory?
1: Absolutely. I took a double credit honors seminar at Swarthmore as a senior in the history and philosophy of science taught by Hugh Lacey. An absolutely transformative course. It completely changed the course of my life my, my intellectual trajectory and you was the best teacher I ever had. And what's interesting about this, he's, he's a philosopher of science. So he wasn't doing the stuff that I ultimately was engaged in moral, political philosophy, social philosophy, and things like that. It was just hardcore philosophy of science. But what really got me excited about this course, we, we studied the history of astronomy uh, and, and physics, the history of astronomy the history of physics. And so we were looking at philosophy of science through the lens of problems that arose internally to these natural science disciplines. And you realize that there are kind of or metaphysical problems or epistemological problems that are generated internally from these other disciplines. So they're not like, it's just, it's not something that arises just purely a priori as a pure philosophical question detached from another mode. No, it's that mode of inquiry itself is generating philosophical problems for itself that it needs to have a philosophy to answer. Now that's really profound. And then in order to solve the problem, you actually have to do empirical inquiry. You can't run off and do your, put on your philosophy cap and just do pure a priori philosophical reflection or conceptual analysis or whatever style you want. No, 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 <laughs> right? You have to do it in a way that's responsive to the empirical findings That the scientists are coming with. And that was just really profound. And I thought, wow. And and then, you know, if you look at what the best philosophy of science does, it's always deeply engaged with the details of the scientific theory. So before Kuhn, philosophy of science, you know, under po- logical positivism, it, it was sort of generic philosophy of science. It wasn't like philosophy of biology or philosophy of physics, right? It was just generic, like we're going to tell you the logic of science in general. And then Kuhn comes along and he says, no, no, you look at the details of like particular sciences and different different questions are going to arise in different particular sciences so if you're going to do like philosophy of biology like different questions arise and different problems arise there and the answers you came up with in philosophy physics aren't necessarily going to be applicable
0: right and you're referring um, to, to thomas kuhn and famous work structure of scientific revolutions uh, yeah among and, and tons
1: of tons of very fruitful research so i'm not at all wedded to kuhn's own way of, of, of answering the questions, it was more that he thought we should be doing philosophy of science and engagement with the actual science and the details of how that worked and how scientific controversies arise and how they get resolved. And you have to do that in detail, looking at particular sciences. That's what excited me. Mm-hmm. And so I thought what a real turning point was in thinking I saw the philosophical fruitfulness, the intellectual fruitfulness and excitement of that mode of doing philosophy, philosophy of X, right? Where X could be any discipline, any problem. But the idea is that the problem itself is just drenched with empirical study, it's not purely a priori. So basically, what, what I was learning from the Philosophers of Science was you, you examine philosophical problems as they arise internally to these other activities that people are engaged in. Sometimes it's inquiry, like biology or physics. And I thought, but we could do that also for philosophy, for moral and political philosophy social philosophy, we could look at political behavior. You know, we could look at economic behavior. That is actual work, for instance, what work is like (laughs) for people, actual productive activity, um, and we can ask philosophical questions about that. Like, what are the problems that people experience in their lives? From saying engaging in democratic politics, from, from buying stuff, on from working at jobs. There are problems that people experience in that our current institutional arrangements aren't really adequately addressing. Like people aren't satisfied with how their lives are going with our current arrangements. So they're facing problems, and, and the, that that should be explored in empirical details. But but they always generate questions for philosophy to reflect normative questions, right? Um, but but the normative inquiry has to be accountable to the actual experiences of people, the problems that they have. Hmm. And consequently, you can't do pure. There's no pure normative reflection. It's got to be engaged, and, and it's it, and that's what I learned from the best philosophers of science. They're engaged with what the scientists are doing. They're not just sort of abstractly philosophizing about the nature of science, detached from any particular scientific endeavor. They're actually like learning the. <laughs> talking to scientists, right? <laughs> um, that's what the really great philosophers of science are doing. Huh. And, and similarly, I thought, well, we should be doing that in ethics and political philosophy,
2: too.
0: And so you began this line of questioning about ethics and trying to take this this uh, basically a new approach to this you know a way to unify philosophy and the science of ethics for instance um, I'm, I'm curious that seems like brand new territory uh, there probably wasn't a lot of guidance for how to do that and I think there's also a little bit of mystique almost around cont contemporary philosophy you know what does a what does a modern philosopher do um, how did you attempt to unify those what what was your early life as a contemporary philosopher like
1: so you know i you i started off doing much more abstractly theoretical stuff than i'm doing now i mean a lot of the trajectory of my intellectual life has been moving more and more away from kind of Abstractly theoretical styles into more like historically and contextually engaged styles of doing philosophy, and arguments that are embedded in, say, telling a history.
0: And, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but is that is that because you found more fulfillment in some manner in that more concrete approach?
1: Well, it, it's that I think it, I think it actually. It gets you better results. Mm. Um, it, 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 it enables you to get a better grip on why we think the way we think and behave the way we behave, kind of uncover historical origins and blind spots in mm. the way we think and so forth. Um, it's oriented or revising our own self-understandings and getting more insight into why we're behaving in certain problematic ways and how we can right, move forward from there. Um, and that's just based on uh, pragmatism, basically. So, you know, it goes back, I think, to the greatest is for people who are engaged in of work is not Dewey. And so a lot of my work is really informed by Dewey and pragmatism. And, and what I've been trying to do is, I don't know if you've ever sat down and read Dewey, Dewey's a terrible writer, unfortunately, <laughs> it's just like awful. And and so, you know, you have to have sp- high patience for slogging through hundreds of pages of text and thinking, where, I, where is this headed? It's like, oh, it just feels like such a slog. <laughs> Until suddenly you realize how it all fits together, and then you think, "Oh my god! Like this is like so incredibly deep." And rough.
2: I, I would love <laughs> that was
1: sort of my experience reading Dewey, but it takes like six hundred pages. Right. <laughs> so one thing, one thing that is actually deeply true of, of of scholarship is it all requires the patience to do tons of slog through stuff that just seems like so tedious, in order to get insight. It's very, very important. So Max Weber, in his great essay, Science is a Vocation, was lecturing to his students about like, what is the nature of getting yourself to a scientific enterprise? You know, in German it's Wissenschaft, so it's not just natural science, right? It could be like what he was doing, sociology. Could be any discipline, really, any any disciplined inquiry is this and And he tells his students, you should not feel that you, Bob, sitting down and making thousands of statistical calculations by hand. Of course they only oh, they didn't have computers in those days. But but the idea but but his sense was saying that really to do this well, you just have the patience. You need the patience. You know, very carefully your data, even if it's boring and tedious, because that's where the insight lies. Hmm. Right. Anyway, that's a little bit of a distraction, but <laughs> no, I, I, I'm
0: actually fascinated. but I'd love if you could talk about do you Do you have a very vivid memory of that? Mo- you know, that moment of realization. That's you know that, that is so sustaining. I feel like I, as an academic as well, um, and, and a scientist recognize that needing to give something the time and the attention that, that may sometimes be, um, like you said, a slog. Um, but there, you know, the, the sustaining moments are those moments of realization or the moments are, where a question that, that particularly piques your interest arise. I'm curious, do you, do you identify those moments? Have are those things, is there, is there a couple of moments across your life that, that really stick out to you?
1: just the, this when I was taking this history of philosophy of science course and thinking, well, we could do this in ethics and political philosophy, right? <laughs> that was like a moment, right? Why don't we do ethics and political philosophy like this, like actually start theorizing the problems in people's lives, investigate those empirically. Like what did they find problematic about? certain ways of organizing life, how is that affecting them? What's dysfunctional about it, right? And then then you can develop your normative categories so as to address, to be shaped by those concerns, to help bring them to better articulation. Mm -hmm. So instead of coming to a problem with a priori cookie cutter, normative categories, like welfare, for instance. I mean, welfare is perfectly fine. I mean, yeah, we all need well-being, but in a way that's almost too generic. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Absolutely. You you wanna know, well, what matters to people? So let me just give you an example, because there's one place method is very consistently practiced, and that's in feminist philosophy. You start with the problems that people experience, and, and you see this in feminist practice. So I was, uh, a couple years ago, uh, several years ago now, I went to this talk. It was, a, it was actually part of a, in a series of talks on basically people in science and medicine who were doing interesting investigations having to do with gender and gender roles and so forth. And they brought out this person who was trying to engage couples responses to miscarriage. And you know, how do you help people? You know, here they're counting on a birth and a healthy baby. And these are late, these are late, very late miscarriages. We're not talking about, you know, Something where you couldn't identify a fetus. It needs to be like somebody who miscarries in like month seven. Okay, so that's like where you've invested a lot in in, into the pregnancy at that point. You feel a baby kicking inside, maybe even already decorated. The nurse, you know what I'm saying? I mean, these are people who, right? And then they have the shocking death at month seven or eight, sometimes even nine, right? Like it's and what did they need and what was what mattered to them and what struck me was when this nurse practitioners examining this what they wanted to do was hold the fetus that the body mattered they wanted to see the body they wanted to say goodbye that that was really profound because if you're just theorizing abstractly about human welfare, that like, and you've never been in that situation, would it ever cross your mind that that was important? You know what I mean? I, I was just that was profound to me because it shows how important it is to actually ask people what matters to them. Mm. And you know, the abstract kind of welfare, I mean, you know, it's just not gonna. People might think, oh, well, they're going to be distressed. Maybe they need anti-anxiety pills. Well, no, they do not need anti-anxiety pills. They right. need them all the baby. Right. <laughs> right. And it just shows you how, and, and this kept on coming up, and of course, you know, the standard way the hospital was arranged, that was not, their mind was that this is sort of like medical waste or whatever, and it, it, they, they're categorizing this fetus in like a completely different way altogether. And in a way that wasn't really connecting with the couple's needs. You see what I mean? Absolutely. And so now you can change. Once you listen carefully to what people want, there's no real problem. I mean, just, yeah, okay, so let them hold, let them hold the, the fetus.
0: Right. And I, I think that, you know, this idea, this concept exists across a lot of fields. I mean, you talk about in the social sciences with you know, it being ethnography, stepping into... A culture and really observing, and then you talk about even something like um like design, uh, where they have a user centered or a, a human centered approach to this to really understand you know, who you're designing for. It's that that act of engaging with the people and, and like you said, gathering empirical evidence of of how your ideas impact on the ground. I think, as you said, yeah. Um, and and you know, I I think that I'm inspired by the way that you you think and the way that you incorporate that component into your work. And I'm curious the the origins of that. Uh, you, you graduated from Harvard and, and you accepted a position at the University of Michigan as a professor. These ideas were, were, were probably heavy on your mind at that time. How did you design your your career as a professor um, around this?
1: Well, a fundamental principle I've always had ever since taking this philosophy science course is, to be reading stuff outside of philosophy mm, right. because pure philosophy isn't going to be giving you these insights and, and so you know throughout my career reading economics read, you know just reading all kinds of engaged stuff keeping up with the news reading around in all the social sciences for my dissertation I was reading a lot of sociology People like Simmel, Max Weber, um, classical, you know, sociologists uh, to get to get insight into, you know, market transactions. How do people interact in markets? How do they understand money? Mm. So Simmel on the velocity of money is like really it's an amazing. Uh, Insights there about how people acquire this completely abstract sense of money from origins where money was this very concrete thing. So he talks about in, in some societies, money is shaped in certain forms so that you can only buy certain things with certain kinds of money, like you would have fish shaped money if you wanted to buy fish, right? And you couldn't buy something else. Right. With that money, you't use it to buy fish,, right? <laughs> and it's like, whoa, hold on, like this is really interesting like and then he then he talks about how people get acquired more abstract notions of money until pretty soon you like you didn't even need a physical token. All you' need is like an account in some bank which just has numbers stored somewhere, right, and that's money, it's completely abstract, right. But that, that move to abstraction actually ha- happens pretty rapidly. So, you know, this, uh, the biggest money in the world, uh, it, it, it's, it's produced by people in this tiny Pacific island of Yap. Did you think about this? No. Like each coin is a giant boulder that weighs like 500 pounds. Can barely like move it. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> it's like, okay, well, That's what wild. are you going to do with something like that? This is not pocket change. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and <laughs> obviously you can't move it. And they talk about how, you know, in, in, in this society, like somebody wanted to thing super expensive. And so they're taking this giant boulder on a canoe to another island to make the purchase. And the canoe capsizes, it's not that surprising, right? A little <laughs> wave right? makes it un, uneven, it's impossible to, <laughs> right? And so it sinks to the bottom of the ocean, but that did not stop the transaction from going on, hmm. because people knew where the thing sank. And so all they had to remember now was, okay, you know, it, it's it's not Joe's boulder at the bottom of the ocean. It's this other guy's boulder. Yeah. <laughs> like that's all they have to know is like who has a claim on it.
2: That is wild. <laughs> so
1: it's just like putting, putting cash out, you know, in a deposit account in a bank and nobody actually sees the coins. Now you're just sort of shifting the ownership. And they had the same concept, even though their money is like giant boulders. <laughs> <laughs> so that, you know, like abstraction right it, it it takes a sort of leap huh. to get there but it just seems like that that's sort of the natural step right anyway so it just shows you how I mean it's an interesting reflection on how on and how abstraction is actually part of the creation of more generalized markets right that's like a huge diversion, but but that's what I love about it is you read this anthropology, right? <laughs> like you see things developing like in real time almost that we take for granted.
0: Right. And you mentioned that you have to read outside of philosophy to arrive at these abstractions or these creations. That strikes me as something that, that's related to a creative process. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, to step out into okay. a just the broad, broad, open information that's available to us can be intimidating and it can be overwhelming. Um, how do you curate? No, but here's
1: the key. The, the key is always to just keep reading. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, these days, you know, if maybe a 30% of what I'm reading is philosophy,
2: hmm.
1: most of it's other stuff.
2: How
0: do you most choose Most of the... it in
1: the social sciences or history.
0: How do you choose what you read? How do you curate that information?
1: Um. So often I'll just have a research question in mind, and that will generate, you know, a reading list. But I'm also constantly like reading the news too, and reading various blogs and, and news sources that are that are engaged with the research literature. So a source like Vox, for instance, often Vox will have articles, uh, people who really have like done a lot of research into what the latest you know, theories that are, the latest research, um, or they're trying to answer some question that's prominent in the news, say, about police brutality. And they'll like give you millions of links to actual empirical studies hmm. to support what they're claiming. So I'll follow the links and... and look that kind of stuff up constant constant reading with you know where i have general interests so i'm like always interested in the nature of work so you know we read the news and they talk about say how amazon workers are being forced to work at crazy paces, a lot of injuries disproportionate to even what most workhouse <coughs> warehouse workers suffer <laughs> because of the pace and the quote, the quotas, are, they have quotas for how many items they have to fetch per hour. And, you know, those quotas keep up and up until they're basically get injured and then they're tossed out and they hire somebody else. Uh, right. Okay. Well, that's something important to know when, when you're reflecting on what needs to change in the workplace? They're so treating people as disposable just like a bolt that, you know, it's worn out and you just toss it out. Is this how people should be treated? I don't think so. But that's how I'm, Amazon is treating its, its warehouse workers. It's just appalling. You, you shouldn't treat them as disposable entities. And now, you know, independent, the these people are called necessary workers. Well, damn right they're necessary. You know, a lot of people, it's dangerous for them even to go to the grocery store. So they're ordering stuff online for delivery. Well, Mm -hmm. fine. Okay. Well, then these people are necessary even for sustaining basic life. Right? If they're necessary, they're not disposable. Mm. But they're being treated as disposable. Isn't that scandalous? I find that insanely scandalous.
0: Completely.
1: How could we possibly do that to people?
0: I, I feel like we're in a pandemic in more than one way right now. I mean, we're in a pandemic of the body where we have COVID obviously going on and threatening the health of people. Uh, but there's also this pandemic of the rise of populism and.
1: Absolutely. And, and, yes. you know,
0: the poison of the mind really. And, and, i you know, your ideas about equality really span, span that I think, and really address the drive to that. Um, could you describe that a little bit, um, you know, you have this landmark paper in 1999 about what is equality, and I think that a lot of your work has really um, flourished from that point.
1: Yes, that's actually right. So I wrote this paper called is The Point of Equality. And it starts off as an attack on a particularly abstract, but very popular post Rawlsian account of equality, which tries to represent equality as a certain pattern in the distribution of goods. And my argument was that try to attempt your equality in this way, turns it into an abstraction where it makes it impossible to understand why anyone would care about it. So just to illustrate, you have two planets with two different populations, they're not in they're they're light years away, they don't know about each other, there's no causal between these planets. And one planet has, for for reasons which is like, and and they're both populated by human, you know, humanoid creatures, irrational, you know, with all the same capacities as humans. And one of them has, you know, living or happiness level, whatever, half of the other. And, you know, to some egalitarians, like, this is a horrible injustice. And I'm saying, well, it might be too bad for the people who are half as happy, but this has nothing to do with justice. There's nothing we could do about the half as happy planet that's out of causal contact with us because they're right. We have nothing to do with their unhappiness. You might think it's too bad for them that they're not that happy. And yeah, that's a coherent thought. But the thought that there's some injustice here, I think, is absurd. There's no injustice. Nobody's done anything wrong to anybody else. It's just sort of like a cosmic accident. Um, and, and how could it be? Like, suppose you discovered that there was a planet out there with a population just like us, only it's twice as happy. Would that suddenly make you worse off knowing that? That shouldn't. Why should that make you worse off? But if anything, if if you, if you have a concept of justice such that it's for anybody to be the victim of it, I'm sorry, like, this is not (laughs) a concept of injustice that we need, right? Right.
2: right?
1: I mean, injustice, you know, to have normative bite, it had better be something under which people suffer. You know what I'm saying? What's bad for people to be a victim of injustice, but it's not bad for people that there's some planet light years away where everybody's twice as happy as, as they are now. Like, wow, how could that be bad? <laughs> I mean, it doesn't, it shouldn't hurt you, right? And, and so I wrote this paper basically against this, um, it's just absurdly abstract notion of injustice that I think really just completely detached from anything, any egalitarian ever cared about. Mm -hmm. And and I wanted to direct people's attention to actual social egalitarian social movements and what things they demand, like what, what matters to people, actual people in the world who are marching in the streets. You know what I mean, what demands do they see and cast under the form of injustice? And so, like within the feminist movement and marching for reproductive rights. Well, what precisely is being unequally distributed in this case? I I, I don't see this. Mm. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's not the right way to be thinking about it. And, and my argument was the way to think about it for equality as a quest for justice has to be understood as a quest for to get rid of oppressive social relations. All oppression is a function of social relations. What do some people feel entitled to do to others? Or, you know, how how are social organizations arranged in such a way as to create whole classes of people whose needs are systematically neglected or ignored or, you know. Treated as trivial when in fact they're af- absolutely vital.
0: Hmm. Absolutely, I, it, it's a it's a brilliant paper, and I, I know that it's um, oft cited and it's it's um, sparked a, a lot of fantastic work in intervening intervening years, um, including during you know over this time period. Fast forward a few years, and and you were selected by the. MacArthur Foundation for a, a genius grant. And there's such a, a mystique around the genius grants um, about how they select the individuals and you know I think that some of the criteria that they offer is that this individual is exceptionally creative and, and on the verge of, of really creating waves and, and you know I'm, I'm fascinated by those who were are selected into this and, and why they think they were chosen. So for, in your instance, do you trace how you may have, why you may have been selected for that? Or how do you think about it?
1: <laughs> well, you know, it's it so under wraps, the selection process. So I don't, I don't really know hmm. how my name came to their attention. I mean, I really don't know how it works. I mean, the, the, the felons themselves don't know how it works. Although I presume at some point the MacArthur Foundation is going to ask me for names. But, right. But, but I don't think, it, it doesn't systematically work all, it's it's not just a self-referring club. Hmm. I do know that there are people who are asked to give their opinions, who themselves are not fellows.
0: Right, um, and, and we had uh, Cecilia Conrad from the MacArthur Foundation on the show, and she was saying that there's a, there's a phone call that's made to the people who have been selected. What was that phone call like for you? Oh, that was
1: hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Prepared for it like you, you have no idea and it was hilarious because i get this call and what's funny is they just um i i have some news for you are you sitting down <laughs> yes i'm sitting down is there anyone else in the room
2: no i don't know <laughs>
1: they tell you right you don't want to hear they just think you're gonna like faint or <laughs> <laughs> i mean it is like you're just totally floored <laughs> It's not the kind of thing that anyone could possibly expect.
0: Right. That's it is wild. out of the blue. Utterly. And, you know, I mean, if you look at your, your resume, just the, the list of accolades and, and awards is is stunning. Has this one meant more to you? What has what it allowed you to do and why has it been different if it has been? Oh, fun.
1: well, I mean, the biggest thing is that um, I just stepped off from chairing my department a year ago. Hmm. And uh, I chaired my department for five years. And boy, I mean, that's talk about a slog, (laughs) it's a different slog. I mean, I I don't regret doing it. I, I, there were things I wanted to do for colleagues, for grad students, for undergrads that I was in a position to do, you know, as chair and they were important things and I'm glad I did it, but boy, it just puts a real crimp on your, and so the great thing is you get this money and it, it just is going to enable me looking in the future to to take more time off and and write these books i have a lot of books on my agenda (laughs) and i'm (laughs) here you know so this is one book that i've had on hold for years now and i I really want to get back to it i'm very eager but i have i have some other things that have shorter deadlines that i have to finish before i could get back to this and I'm getting used to the MacArthur we to finally get back to it and finish it up.
0: <laughs> it's exciting. It really is for all of us. I, I mean, it's interesting that they call it the Genius Grant. I've been thinking a lot about this term, genius. Uh, oh,
1: I find it. No, they, they don't call it that. So it's important that the MacArthur Foundation itself does not call right. it the Genius Grant. And they disavow that, and properly so. They, R- is not it I mean. I, I just think that this is a mistake. So you know, there's been some wonderful research done about the word how people associate different disciplines with genius, and mm-hmm. how that's highly pro- correlated with uh, uh, male domination of the field.
0: Right. I, I have heard a little bit about this. I, what I, I, I agree with you that um, I think the genius grant doesn't doesn't really capture the the ethos of the program. But I am interested in in just how we conceive of of genius in the fact that it's it's kind of a it's supposed to be some some super gift uh someone just has genius or but they don't a gift. Is the i thing? don't think so either that,
1: it, look i mean it's just a like max favor said in sciences of vocation it's the patience to do an awful lot of slogging
0: <laughs> yeah well and then also and that, i think yeah. there's a there's a component of it, a dimension of it that is the organization of information a, a superior ability to organize information and and I think that yes. that's, that's why it's it so well speaks to you as a person. I, I, you strike me as someone who's able to take in an enormous amount of information and organize it in a way. And I think that something that I wrote down earlier when you were speaking was question-driven j- reading or question-driven information. Yes. And, and I think that that kind of maybe speaks to your method a little bit of how you organize this information. I, is that something that's conscious to you? Uh, do you have a specific system? Oh, absolutely. System? This is
1: very conscious So, so if you actually go back in the history of philosophy, philosophers have always been reading around, (laughs) (laughs) look at Aristotle. I mean, Aristotle, like one of the earliest systematic philosophers, he's doing biology, he's doing astronomy, he's, you know, reflecting on the politics of Athens, he's doing like all this kind of stuff. He's reading drama and reflecting on drama. Right? I mean, he's basically like reading everything and, and if, on everything, and, and you see time and time again, if you go back to say, um, one of my favorite philosophers, Adam Smith, he basically invented economics. It's incredible. You read The Wealth of Nations and you see all of these innovative ideas just dripping out of this, and he's inventing them. He's like the first guy to be thinking about these things. <laughs> and, and I mean, there were other economists, but he, he really just stood out. And everyone understood that at the time. But he's also a fabulous moral philosopher. The Theory of Moral Sentiments is one of the greatest works of moral philosophy ever written. a we return to it. It's a very profound work of moral psychology. I Frankly, I think he's a deeper moral psychologist than Hume. And, and his work is also positively dripping with empirically testable psychological propositions. You could take theory of moral science and, and go to the lab and devise zillions of experiments off of his notions of sympathy and test how sympathy actually works. I think that'd be a fabulous research program. It's just incredible. He's very insightful. Mm. Um, so here you have people, and Bethel, of course, is reading around. You know, he has his lectures on jurisprudence. He's going through the history of law, from like Roman times on, and and crazy laws that Europeans got from like the feudal era and how irrational they are. <laughs> <laughs> but also, but how they made sense for their time, and why they don't it's today. So just a little snippet. Okay, I'll just give you a little sample. So Smith is reflecting on the fact that land ownership in England is insanely concentrated. Like, you know, maybe a couple hundred families, almost everything. And by the way, to this very day, in England, land is incredibly concentrated compared to any other country, any other sort of wealthy capitalist country (laughs) in the world. And Smith says, look, back in the feudal days, you can understand why, because a landowner basically was a little lord, and he had to defend his estate by having his knights, right? And the bigger your estate, the bigger an army you could field to defend your property against marauders. So you can understand why there'd be kind of some rationale for constructing estates and getting them bigger and bigger, because then they're more defensible. But that but that only made sense in the days when in order to get any access to justice at all, you know, a lowly peasant had to beg their lord to kind of, you know <laughs> deliver justice. But these days we actually have a consolidated state that's able to administer justice in the courts and and, and so we don't need these big landowners. They're not doing anything for us. In fact, they're like lazy. <laughs> and like they're really like what are they doing they get all this money this rent from from the farm who are doing all the real work and then they're like wasting it on gambling and drinking and parties it's like they're economically useless there's no reason Mm -hmm. to have these consolidated estates anymore and then he looks into the inheritance laws primogenitor and entail and he on an attack on them because they were preventing uh, a free market in land. His argument was, if you had a free market in land, like all these lazy landlords who are totally economically useless, they would put away their fortunes and they'd have to sell them off in pieces to the really, to the people who are really doing all the work, namely these farms, right? And then if they got ownership, then of course they could, you know, invest, make it more productive, and we'd have a much better system and then farmers would also be way better off because they'd be getting a hundred percent of the fruits of their labor instead of having to hand over a big chunk of their product, mm-hmm. you know, to their landlord payment of rent. Right. And and so right, so he gives you he shows you in history like why it at some at some level sort of made sense to have giant estates, but also why in the modern economic times with the rule of law and and impartial courts, why you don't need these big landowners, you just get rid of them. Mm. <laughs> not that you would kill them. I mean, he's not like in the French where you just like, <laughs> kill your enemies. No, it's kind of like, no, you just let the market, you you have to open the land up to vulnerability, to to, to market competition. And, and then these these lazy landlords will, will find their fortunes frittered away and land will land in more productive hands. Mm. Original rationale for free markets.
0: You know, I was, I I had question a question to ask you about um, how you inspire. How, you're someone who remains permeable to new ideas. It's it, you know you're you're able to do that. Uh, I think it's a special skill. And I'm always curious how people like yourself are able to teach others to do that. And I was I wanted to ask you how you do that for your students. But as I'm sitting here listening to you, I have these these lists of of things that I want to read. And even even you're inspiring. And just like I'm feeling your passion and your curiosity through your words. And I think that um, that kind of answers that question, but um, is that something... Oh, it's so
1: exciting to be reading all this other stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. I can... and,
1: and, and the thing is is that, um, so yeah, so I tell my students, read all this other stuff and think philosophically about it. Like draw your philosophical problems from the news, hmm. from various social sciences, from history and, and connect. So the critical thing is if you're reading over the place, then you notice patterns, you notice connections, and you do have to be very systematic. So, so a very important part of my, prog, uh, my process is, even if I'm not currently in some something like for the direct purpose of writing something in particular, but I have a general interest in the subject. I'll still be reading stuff. So I've been reading all this stuff on police brutality and policing, like how policing works. And eventually I'll probably write something up on this, but right now it's just like, I'm interested in this. I think that, you know, for political philosophy, a very important subject, how, you know, what alternatives could there be now that's becoming an issue. But in fact, I've been taking, I've been taking, I've been reading about policing for years before Black Lives Matter is on the agenda as a thing that everybody has to be thinking about. So the the key is you do have to have a bibliographic database and you're sticking everything that is of interest in there. With your key, you're sticking keywords so you know how to look it up later. (laughs) That's really important.
0: (laughs) It's Uh, that that organization of, of information that we were talking about. The relational It's very, very important,
1: so even if you're not writing about it or researching about it, if you find it interesting, you just sort of stick it in your bibliographic database, you got the full citation there, usually with a link, hopefully, if it's online, and you can find it instantly, and maybe even type it, so if it really catches your attention, even if you're not writing about it, just type in a few notes that'll, like, summarize the point of the piece, hmm. And then it's just tucked away, and at some later time you come back to it. It's relevant
2: mm.
1: now that you're sitting down and writing about something. And so I just have thousands, thousands of references, notes on stuff that I think at some later time might I might need to draw on. And it's just tucked away there, and some that's in my brain too. You know? right. And then and then like you come across some question. And you're, well in fact you already have like a bunch of stuff you've read about it and you can pull it together hmm. and, and also because because i'm reading in, in like all the social sciences i'm reading history i'm reading news you know i'm reading like what's happening now blogs where people i think have especially insightful things a commenting on the news or current events um or recent recent you know work in, in in very you know, recent published work like it's all tucked away and then what you did what you find is that there are these connections and so so
2: uh,
1: one of the things that you know is a, the way academia is organized is that we're all trained within a discipline and very frequently people are, are told you just read inside your discipline but that can kind of cabin people's minds and and you know there if you look at some very creative people. I think one thing you find is that they read outside their discipline. Take for instance Thomas Piketty, great economist, in the preface to capital in the in the 21st century, Piketty talks about why he had a, he, he could have been an economist in America, but he chose to pursue economics in France. And why did he do that? And his answer is because economics doesn't have nearly the prestige in France that it has in the United States. So American economists feel that all I have to read is other economics, but in France, because it's a relatively low prestige discipline, like, nobody's going to take you seriously unless you're more widely read.
2: <laughs> wow, I and so that. I don't
1: know if you ever read Capital in the 21st Century, but really, like, the best parts of this book, I mean, it's also very data-heavy. he has got amazing data. It's completely fascinating. You know, the evolution of inequality and how that works. He just purely distributed inequality. But the greatest thing he does is he takes these novels by Jane Austen and Balzac and he explains what life is like in a world of extreme economic inequality and in particular there's this Balzac novel and I can't remember the name of it now because I never read the book <laughs> but it, the, one of the a protagonist in this novel is very ambitious and he comes really not very great origins and so He's he's trying to figure out how is he going to make his way up in Parisian society. And he decides he's going to study law with the intention of becoming a judge. Because judges were the highest paid civil servants in France at the time. And he goes to this party and he meets this guy, or maybe he's at a bar or something. And he meets this guy and this guy says, you idiot. What? You're going to be working so hard just to become a measly judge? Like, if you're really ambitious, like, that's no way to make it. Because, see, what is the salary of a judge? Okay, and it's so much. Can you have a decent standard of life. But this is the highest paid position possible for anyone who's actually working for a living. Okay?
2: Mm.
1: And he says, but that's nothing. I mean, to be really dignified, you need this amount. Fortune, and there's only two ways to get it. One is you're lucky enough to be born into a rich family, and you're going to be an heir. Right? Yeah. And the other way is you can marry into the fortune. And so he says, "But well, look, you know, if you if you marry a rich woman, you know who has who has such a fortune, then you'll have it made, and you won't work at all. And this fortune would be like a hundred times bigger. It would yield an annual income a hundred times more." Than slaving away your days to judge every single working day. <laughs> like, wow. Obviously it's like, there's like working doesn't pay. It's absurd, yeah. right? I mean, it's like, right. You have to marry into wealth and you know, Piketty's point is, <clears throat> this is what a society of extreme inequality is like. Nobody who's really rich actually works all the workers are just like these maniacs who, if they're lucky, could have a sort of comfortable (coughs) middle-class existence, but the vast, vast majority, right? They're totally screwed and they're living in a state of poverty, (laughs)
2: like
1: barely, barely hanging on. That's what real, I mean, you can see how awful society, of course, you know, the super wealthy, they are just like the most worthless people in the world. They were just like partying. They're doing nothing for humanity, right?
0: They're just parasites. Yeah. So Elizabeth, it's it's so fascinating for me to speak with you. Uh, you mentioned your process, um, and I'm just curious about how you build your days. What does what a what does a morning look like for you? If you just step through the, you know, the ways that you that you um, approach the day.
1: Yeah. Well, I always started off with a morning walk. What time? Oh, like you know, if I'm good, I'll be out there at six, more right. likely seven thirty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, and you know.
0: And you're I, alone. Is this with with anyone or a, a pet or anything?
1: Usually, usually I'm alone, and I'll be listening to podcasts. Hmm. That's what I do, and I'll be walking. I'll uh, just you know walk for maybe an hour, an hour and a half.
0: Hmm aimlessly or do you have anywhere to go five five
1: miles a day just around town okay you know i I like to go into the woods these days because it's the only place we keep cool uh but in in the the, as it gets cooler then i'll be more sort of in shopping areas but the pandemic of course is completely changing right Uh, yeah but that but that's a time yeah listening to podcasts usually it's stuff that is sort of that i'm interested in so these days a lot of podcasts about race and racism in the united states policing uh, about economics money issues things like that mm. um but, but you know politics like all kinds of stuff um and then then i'll then then i'll sit down to you know if i if i if i have room to do research so in the summers is all out the mornings are a very important time for me to kind of settle down and get systematic so everything is about systematic and, and so like my writing process right now i'm writing this book on the history of the work ethic wow. from the 17th century to the present we're starting with these puritan preachers in england I've, I've read their stuff which is a fascinating by the way Then I'm tracing the history of how people have thought about the work ethic. and Basically, what what I'm showing is that the people we today call classical political economists, like John Stuart Mill uh, and and Adam Smith, and classical liberals like John Locke, they're absolutely dripping with the work ethic, completely dripping. And once you actually, so this is the the thing, it's all about very, very systematic question-oriented reading. So like, I don't know how many times I've read the second, Locke's second treatise, but but, I it's dozens of times. But I went back and reread it, looking at it through the lens of the work ethic as I gathered it from the 17th century ministers. And once you read it through that lens, everything in Locke is completely dripping with the work ethic. And indeed you can find similar themes in Smith like I just pointed out, like Smith's complaints about the lazy landlords. That's a totally work ethic thing. Wow. It's the people who work the land who should get it, right? <laughs> they're doing something useful with it. What are these people doing with all this land? Right? <laughs> they're just like, you're not investing in it. They're just like taking the rents and partying on it. Like that's useless. It's a very work ethic idea. <laughs> and you get that from Locke. Locke's exactly the same way. And you get it in Mill. I mean, it's incredible how radical Mill is and how, how I mean, he, he's always railing against the, the lazy landlords. Mm. And he even caused them drones in the nest, which was a classic Puritan phrase, mm. complaining about lazy landlords drones in the nest because you know what bees do to the drones right, right. just kick them out right. this is after they you know after they fertilize the queen's eggs like just get all killed right?
0: <laughs> get out of the way
1: <laughs> you know and that's how Puritan's felt about them <laughs>
0: and so you'll sit down and do and work for, for how long what, what is oh, your... I have
1: a very very long attention span I mean okay. I think that's actually one of my one of my best qualities hmm. like if I'm really into writing I can just like write for hours. On yeah. But it's very meticulous. So, so again, if you if you if you're reading from very disparate sources, then in the writing process, the critical thing is how do you all think together? You know, that's a real challenge. And so I've taken detailed notes on absolutely everything that's relevant to my, whatever I'm working on, whatever my writing project is. So then what you have to do is you you don't go back to the original text, you go back to your notes. And so then what you do is like you highlight everything you think is gonna be relevant for constructing your argument. Like I'll do it in red or if it's a super important point, I'll like highlight it in blue. And then you construct a detailed outline. You go back to every source that you think might there, and the, the big argument that you're making. And then you stick every point in an the outline gives you the option, like, where are you going to stick this point? <laughs> right? Right. And so you meticulously construct an outline of the argument ahead of time. And, and then it's just execution. I mean, mm. you still have to write it up. Right. right. But, but you just can follow. So a lot. You're actually right. When you point to organization, it's absolutely critical to doing this. And it's even more important when you're reading very disparate sources, not all of them in your discipline, tying them together is into a coherent story is absolutely critical and outlining and detailed note taking reading your notes like that's how you that's how you pull everything together and that's how you also find surprising connections
0: we're going to have to we're gonna we're gonna have to have you back on because i'm a total nerd when it comes to note taking and I, w- I would love to get into how you take notes and and compare processes like that it's so um,
2: huge
1: they're really like the key to
0: everything. I completely agree, and it's it's something that that inspires me. Um, and I realize looking up now that we we've, we've been chatting for a long time, and I, I want to be respectful of your time, and you you've been very generous with it this morning, and I, I appreciate you you doing this, um, Elizabeth. I, we we usually conclude the show with with a lightning round, where ask kind of a series of of rapid fire questions and answers. Um, and I think I'll abbreviate that since we have such a short time left and, and maybe ask uh, one or two of those questions would Would, would that be okay with you? Yeah, okay, yeah, okay, so the first question uh, this is probably gonna be a difficult one for you, knowing how well read you are. Um, but what is one book that you believe that you have a special relationship to? What's something that has more meaning to you than it say does has it has to others in your perception?
1: Wow. I mean, there's a number of books like
0: that. I'm sure, yeah. But I
1: think, actually, Smith's Theory of Moral Sentiments. Okay. It's a great, great book of moral philosophy, one of the best ever written. It mm-hmm. should be a—it should be canonical, like we should be teaching this as a canonical work. Thank you. To our students.
0: I'm going to compile a list of all of the, the recommendations you've made for reading, and they'll be in the show notes, so thank you for those. Um, personally, I my my own list of reading just uh just grew so thank you for that and and, and I think I'll, I'll skip to the final question that I generally ask and um feel free to interpret this however you like but what is one thing that you truly and fully screwed up <laughs> <laughs> um
2: you mean
1: To get back to you on that
0: one <laughs> that's fine that's fine it's a tough question and uh I'm, I'm always curious what people maybe maybe a, a better way to ask it would be is there been a time that a failure in however you judge that has set you up for later success
1: well I mean there is something actually that this is to my personal life uh When my daughter was in high school in her senior year, she stormed off and just she she left and and lived with someone else for a period of time. It was about a year there. She took a gap year for college. We were really wondering whether she even wanted to go to college, and so I felt that that was like a real failure because we were like floored. Like it just for us, it just came out of the blue. Like it. And we were very shocked, you know, by what she did. And, and then towards the end of that gap year, uh, various events happened that, that enabled us to see why um, she did that. And, and it was just kind of a failure of communication, really. Just, we weren't picking up on certain cues that... that we should have. And now we have a very strong relationship. And, you know, she went to college and she's got a great life. And she became a social worker, but but it was like that failure of empathy, really, which connects back to Smith. Like I should have been picking up on some parents, you know, like, parenting is hard. (laughs) And sometimes you just don't, you're not tracking certain kinds of stress that you think, oh, it's just like, you know, Sometimes teenagers are silly. <laughs> then you realize, no, there's something going on. And sometimes it takes a shock like that to kind of wake you up and realize, oh, like we should, there's certain things we should have addressed.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so yeah, I, I, but I think actually that raises a, a big issue just about communication and getting it. What people's lives are like and taking it seriously, taking their own experience seriously. It doesn't mean that experience, like how people interpret things is always correct, but it matters. It always
2: matters. Mm -hmm.
1: You got to take it seriously. It's a deep, deep, deep principle of human relationships. You got to take it seriously, even if it's like hard to hear. And that I think is like one of the deep things, not just about like personal relationships, within a family. But it's really critical, I think, to our current political model of hot. Because right now it's just, right, it's, it's just look, It's divisiveness, how horrible these others are. And that, that's what people are seeing. The other side's like horrible people, they're evil, they're threatening. It's a profound polarization. It's a profound obstacle to democracy precisely because you
2: can't listen to people and, and, and
1: take them seriously if you think they're evil. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You got to get real. And that's very hard. It's very challenging. And people resist that because when they hear what the other has to say, they might not be, they might not like it. <laughs> they might be, reflect poorly on themselves. You know what I'm saying? That's what makes it so hard. But it's precisely that that makes democracy vital. We got to learn that hard work of a whole thing just goes down the drain. That's the moment that we're at now.
0: That's a that's a a wonderful sentiment. Um, I think you know the the I, the the words of generosity and compassion come to mind from what you were just saying. And thank you for sharing, Elizabeth and Elizabeth Anderson. Thank you. So much for joining us on Origins today. Yeah, um, it's a pleasure. It's It's been a true pleasure to talk with you. Thank you.
1: Take care. Stay safe.
0: Likewise. Uh, have a wonderful yeah. day and we'll talk with you soon.